Don't forget to mispronounce someone's name. This episode of iFreeze is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 76 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. Pete Hodgson. Hello, from sunny San Francisco. Alando Brunton. Hello, from North Carolina. Charles Maxwood. This is the first show that I have an intro that I've actually been on, but I have a cold. Ouch, that sounds tough. My name is Jim Zuber. <laughs> actually, it's yes. James Zuber. Oh, sorry. Figure I should get the obligatory mispronunciation going. But today we're going to talk about finding iOS jobs. And I thought we'd start by just kind of going around the horn and having people share their story of how they got into iOS development. Uh, who wants to start? I will start. So I don't know if technically I have an iOS job. I uh, <laughs> I got a job at Fortworks and we do like a bunch of, you know, I've, I've worked in a bunch of different tech stacks at various points in my Fortworks career. And then one day I was on a project in Pittsburgh and I got a call saying, we're starting a project in San Francisco and it's an iOS job or it's an iOS project. Do you know any iOS? <laughs> and I said, well, I've uh, spent about two hours, no, maybe eight hours, like, playing around in Xcode a year ago. And they said, you're the man for us. <laughs> so I learned iOS on the job, basically. So you um, could spell iOS? I could just about spell iOS. Probably at the time I wasn't sure whether you capitalized the I or not, so I could half spell it, maybe. Um, yeah, so that, that, was my, that was my story. I kind of learned on the job helping this big bank in San Francisco build their iOS app or re- rebuild it. Yeah, that, that's how I got started, I guess. How about you, Alondo? I was a C-sharp developer doing Windows Dev, and I got involved in the local iOS dev group. And what happened was I started working on an app volunteering for a conference that was being put on, and someone saw me committing code there and called me up and asked me if I was interested in joining their iOS development team. So I sort of dipped my toe in the iOS pool because I was interested in, in the platform having just purchased an iPhone, and uh, started from there. Andrew, what do you have? Well, so long-time listeners of the show know that I am I consider myself a Mac developer more so than an iOS developer, but I just got started doing Mac development in my spare time. I wrote and released an app that I still sell, a Mac app. And so when the iOS SDK came out in 2008, I was already a Mac developer, already a Cocoa developer, and I had an iPhone, and so I was really excited about it and applied to the beta program, got in. So I've been doing iOS development since the very beginning, but I was really a hardware engineer, and I, I wasn't doing development full-time. I did do some contract work, and I was even able to maneuver to where I did a pretty serious iOS app at my job where I was a hardware engineer. And then about three and a half years ago, I decided I wanted to 
do programming full time, mostly because of the work environment. I wanted to be able to work from home, have a little more creative input into what I was doing. And so I started looking for jobs and found a job at Mixed in Key and applied and, and got the job. And, and it's been a really great change for me. So I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the switch, even though I miss hardware sometimes, but just the job, the job environment, all of that has been really great. Yeah, I think that's one of the pluses of doing mobile development is people that can actually do the work are hard to find. So people will work with you if you want to have a different working situation, if you want to be remote working, not on the office all the time, or contract, people are willing to work with you. So that's really, that's a good benefit of being in, in this kind of niche right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, particularly coming from my career doing hardware, it's pretty hard to do hardware from home because you sort of have test equipment and part, you know, a room full of parts and lots of specialized tools and you're working on physical things a lot of the time. So software, and I think in particular mobile for various reasons, really lends itself well to the remote work thing, unlike most other industries. Yeah, definitely. They don't really want to ship out a, you know, a half a million dollar test unit for you to, you know, mess with, you know, have it in your house. Yeah, I do uh, electrical work. I got to work on cool stuff and I would love to have it at my house, but that certainly was not practical. So, James, how did you get started? So, I did some Mac work way back when, not a whole lot, but primarily I was, you know, a .NET C Sharp developer and I started doing way back when doing embedded work, C, C++, but eventually that kind of transitioned into .NET. And I did like client development, you know, Windows Forms, that type of thing. Eventually that went away, but I was doing, you know, C Sharp backend database type work. And I had just gone as, just went out as an independent consultant. And I was talking to these, these people that were starting a project for the startup. It's like, yeah, we need some help doing some, you know, C Sharp backend work, some .NET MVC type work. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And I found out a little bit more about the project, and there was an iPhone component to it. And this was probably late 2010, and I remembered kind of the Mac stuff I had done and kind of enjoy, always enjoyed working with Mac. And I told them, look, I'll buy a MacBook if you let me work on the iPhone project. And they're like, yeah, sure. So uh, that's how I got my start. So I was able to get paid on the job, spend three or four months doing some development, kind of learning as I go. And this was before there was really a large market for it. So I kind of got off like, oh, I'd like to do more. And kind of the, the network I had and wasn't really doing a whole lot of iOS work yet. But I recognized that, you know, this is kind of something that's coming down the pipe. It's going to be pretty big pretty soon. So I kind of set my focus to get my skills up to it, up to what was happening and kind of went from there, just taking work what I can get and doing as much mobile as I could. So that's how I got my start. So did you like gradually transition into full like all of your work being iOS, or did you kind of just jump totally into iOS work straight away? Yes, I mean, so I had a three, four-month project up front, whereas all iOS, and I'm like, oh, cool, I'll do some more iOS work. And there really wasn't much, and my network was really kind of .NET enterprise-type work. Right. So those type of companies weren't looking for iOS work at stuff at this point. iPad was still pretty new. I think iPad 2 came out. And that's really what drove a lot of kind of interest in iOS for the bigger companies. So I just took contracts I could and did as much mobile work as I could with it and kind of gradually transitioned over, did some work on the side and just found one full-time iOS gig that I was at for about a year. And that's how I got into it pretty seriously. 
I have to admit, I mostly just dabble. I do a lot of back-end work for iOS, so I've built APIs, and I've built stuff that integrates with the Apple Push Notification Service. And that's my economy of words, because I'm not talking very much. Yeah, I think as a group, we've got the main groups of people that get into iOS development. And we've got people coming in from the Ruby world, we've got the old-school Mac developers, people that do, we're doing kind of enterprise T-sharp stuff. We're missing all the Flash people, though, because Flash went away. Like you know what's interesting? We're, I, I was just thinking we're, what we're missing as well is Java devs. Like It's kind of funny that there's no one with that much of a job. Like most of the enterprise-y, back-end-y stuff is, is .NET rather than Java. I wonder if people who were doing Java and wanted to get into mobile tended to just go with Android. Or I wonder if more people tried to learn iOS development, found it hard, and said well, tried to learn Objective-C and didn't like that, and then said, well, you know what, if I go and do Android work, then I can still use Java. I can say from my experience and the teams that I work with, because we've always done uh, native apps for both Android and iOS, one of the biggest uh, gripes that I've heard is about Objective-C and just how uh, difficult it is to learn and wrap your head around because of the syntax and some of the other things. And mainly from those... Android developers who were Java devs that were interested in developing for iOS, but they just really, really yeah. hate Objective-C. And I've heard even recently that sort of the joy in the introduction of Swift because they think that now, okay, it's one less hurdle for moving over. Yeah, I bet that's pretty common. Although, yeah, I'm hoping that with Swift, it'll be a lot more accessible for folks. That, Like you said, like that one hurdle will, be, will go away. Does Swift change the market at all as far as finding jobs goes? I don't think so in the short term because I don't know how many Swift projects are taking place where companies are just saying we're we're either shifting our code base over to Swift or we're implementing. I know we aren't. No project that I've worked on has even mentioned introducing Swift. I've heard of one project that I'm aware of that started and and they're using Swift, but the reason they went into it knowing they they made a conscious decision to use Swift and they they knew that it would be a while before it's a pretty big app and they know that they're not going to release for a few months. So they're expecting to have a few months to get up to speed and get the bugs out of the language and all the rest of it. I'm going to guess that the Swift apps that are being built today are almost all, or the Swift programming that's being done today is all in Greenfield, almost all in Greenfield apps rather than people converting their current code bases over to be half Swift and half Objective-C. Yeah, I'm aware of at least one large app that tried to go Swift and they just backed out because it was not ready. It was not playing with the existing code very well. Right. And this was a month or you know, two or three months ago, so it's undoubtedly improved. But I haven't heard a lot of big projects that have gone to Swift, or any, really. So do you guys, I mean, I guess the question that Chuck was getting at maybe is like, let's say I'm a .NET developer today, and I'm excited about getting a job in iOS. Do you think I should learn Objective-C, or should I learn Swift? It's a great question. It actually came up at the recent 360 iDev Men I was at last week in Greenville, and uh, there was a panel discussion, and this very question was one of the questions asked. The consensus was that it, you still need to know Objective-C. I mean, the libraries, the frameworks are still, and they haven't been converted over. So if you're, you're going to be working with the iOS framework, so you really do need to understand and use Objective-C. That being said, um, as you mentioned, for Greenfield development and maybe projects that are looking to see the light of day in the future, uh, it definitely would be beneficial to start working in Swift and, and getting your bearings there as well. 
So I think it's probably a little bit of both, but you definitely still need to know Objective-C now. Yeah, I, so I've been thinking about this, and I've seen quite a bit of discussion about it online. And I think another thing, besides just the frameworks being all written in Objective-C, is that if you're planning to work with a team and work on, you know, get a job doing iOS development, you're almost certainly going to be working on existing code bases that are in Objective-C that are not going to be converted to Swift anytime soon, if ever. And so I really think to be an effective iOS developer, you're going to need to know Objective-C for quite some time. I mean, I think eventually the move to Swift will probably be mostly complete, but it's a while yet, I would think. Yeah, if you know Objective-C and you know C-sharp, Swift is not that hard. You know, Swift is mainly going in a direction that, you know, C-sharp has already got has already been in, you know, a lot of things that I was missing coming from a C-sharp background, you know, are there in Swift. So I don't think if you learn Objective-C, you're cutting yourself off from learning Swift. You already know a lot of the concepts. And that's true for anyone coming from Ruby, Groovy, or any more modern type languages. Yeah, I guess, like, even just from a practical point of view, if you were interviewing for an iOS job, the person who's interviewing you, the odds of them, like, let's say they give you a coding problem and you start solving it in Swift, I'm not actually sure the odds are that high that the person interviewing you is going to be comfortable reading Swift. They might say, like, hey, can we do this in Objective-C? Because I don't know Swift. But aren't they going to want you to have three years of Swift experience? <laughs> That's the I'm... hiring manager and then the recruiter. You know. <laughs> right. The recruiter is probably going to tell you about this exciting Swift-based Android app that this team is building. <laughs> it's a great opportunity. Looking for back-end Swift developers. <laughs> If you're looking for an iOS job, where do you go? How do you find one? In San Francisco, you stand in the street, stationary, for about two minutes. And then a recruiter walks by. And then they say to you, hey, you look like you're a developer. Do you want an iOS job? And you say yes. And then that's it. You're done. It's easy. Don't know what you guys would like. Episode over. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're, if you're not fortunate enough to live in San Francisco, I will say, in my experience, one of the things that you can do is definitely connect with your local meetup. Uh, iOS developers user group or CocoaHeads chapter, if there's one where you are. In my experience, at least in the Southeast, the meetups that I've been to, recruiters tend to frequent those and even sponsor those in a lot of cases. So it's a great place to sort of kill two birds with one stone. Uh, you can meet other developers in the community, and you can meet with recruiters who may actually have openings at that time they're looking to place people. That's a really good tip, actually. That's much, much more helpful than my stupid joke. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a range of ethics with recruiters. So Pete's method may not get you the best recruiter to work <laughs> yes, with. Yes, yes. <laughs> Alondo's method, I think, will probably get you a better recruiter to work with. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, in all seriousness, if I was looking for a new tech job, I think the biggest thing that I would look for is a good recruiter that I trust. And I think probably if it was me, I would ask around my network of kind of developer friends for a, a good recruiter. I actually just did this for a friend of mine who's moving to the Bay Area and ex-Fort worker who wants to work at a good company. And I, uh, so I posted on Twitter, like, any dev friends know of an actual good recruiter? And I got a, a good response from some people. So, Also, not only are recruiters present there, that, that sort of secondary benefit of connecting with members of the community, there are lots of independent development projects that need extra help. And that's how I got started. So I just wanted to just reiterate that there's opportunities if you were looking just to do freelance as well. Connecting with the groups is a great way to do that as well, because a lot of those developers are, you know, independent devs who do contracts for clients and they just need someone who can chip in, you know, to help implement a particular feature or something like that. Yeah, you're talking about like moonlighting, nights and weekends type stuff. 
Absolutely. If you just want to get your feet wet, you know, I've worked on several projects where we brought someone in that just to get 10 hours a week done just because we didn't have the bandwidth or to implement a particular feature. Say, for instance, you had an interest in AV foundation or you had a strength in that area um, and we need someone to implement the particular feature or, or implementing that framework. I would bring somebody on just to do that uh, short-term type of work as well. So whether you're looking for long-term employment or you're looking for a way to sort of get your feet wet. And the third way I would say is volunteering because that's how I got started. I just chipped in on a on an open source project to get something done. And there are people sometimes that are doing presentations surrounding a, a particular uh, sort of pet project that they have. And you can volunteer if you're just if you're concerned about not having any experience. And it's a great way to sort of build your portfolio and get experiencing good real world experience uh, developing on the platform. Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of people started doing nights and weekends working on their own projects. If they're lucky, they can get paid to do stuff like that. I had created a startup out of a startup weekend, and I didn't really do any iOS work on the actual project, but after everyone kind of dispersed on the application, and I was kind of doing nights and weekends moonlighting, trying to keep things up to date, making changes to the web service and doing that. So that's how I got a lot of the base skills in Objective-C, because my first attempt, or my, my first project with uh, iOS was Xamarin. Back then it was Monotouch. So I was doing C Sharp and I was still trying to get my head around Objective-C, but I was able to do it working on a project, Moonlighting, you know, nights and weekends. And the market is good enough where if you show just some aptitude, people will take a chance on you. And if you're a good developer, you know, those skills translate over. I think that's really good advice, really. I started the same way at Mixed in Key. I, I had been working nights and weekends on my own stuff, and that's how I really learned Objective-C and Cocoa development. But even when I started for Mixed in Key and, and kind of wanted to move to a real job, for the first few months, I worked for them like on Saturdays and in the evenings, and they were open to it because they needed help. And, and then I transitioned to, to doing it full time. And I think that's actually fairly common, and it can work out really well for both parties. I guess the benefit there as well is you can kind of develop a portfolio, if you will, so that when you're going to another company to try and get your first job, you can show them like, yeah, I built this app or I helped with this app and you can, you've got something to talk about during the interview process and all the rest of it. I think open source is, is the ideal for that, right? Because then you can, if you think you're any good, then you can actually show code ahead of time in the interview process and like show that you know this stuff. I actually think that's something that I've I've noticed and, and also something that we do at Mixed in Key when we're looking for people is I think a lot of iOS jobs, probably even the majority, they'll list in the job requirements that one of the requirements is that you have to have an app on the App Store that you've worked on. And of course, there can be exceptions for you've done a bunch of enterprise development and it's not on the App Store or whatever. But the point is they want to see that you actually know how to write an app, not just you've played around a little bit or whatever. And I think even better is you can show code that you've written. I've talked to people who are looking for someone to do iOS development, and it's not uncommon for them to say, do you have any code you can share with us so we can see what kind of code you write? So if you have that, it can be super valuable. And I agree that open source is a great way to build that kind of a portfolio up. I agree with that. That's one of the things that in the past we've done interviews, we've always asked for a GitHub ID just to check and see what kind of contributions have been made by candidate, it definitely gives people a leg up when it's time to determine who to call and talk to further. I guess the, the challenge for people hiring is not using that as a way of excluding people that don't have like the time or the disposable income to just hang out and do open source work. Do you know what I mean? Like, I guess I'm particularly sensitive to this because I live in Silicon Valley that's full of programmers and a bunch of white guys dominating the industry. But like, if you've got less, less disposable income, then it's harder for you to spend time working on open source and you need to be if you've got spare time, you need to be making money with your 
maybe your spare time. But I still think that there's ways that you can do that and demonstrate capability. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We've definitely. been in situations where we hadn't, a candidate didn't have open source projects and they may have temporarily just let us look at some project they were working on, giving us brief access to just review the code base yeah. and then making it private again. Do you guys, if you've been in, involved in the interview process or the recruitment process for candidates, I don't know if this is really, and this is more of the focus is for employers rather than people trying to get a job, but like, what's some good ways that you can think of for finding a good iOS developer? Like, what would you use to try and filter out people who don't really know what they're doing versus the, your next kind of awesome iOS dev? We've done this recently at Mixed in Key, and our experience typically in the past has been that it, it's actually really hard to find somebody that's really good. We might interview, you know, 30 people and find, uh, and a couple of those seem like they're really going to work out. But one of the things that we do that I don't know how, how typical it is, but, uh, and, and there are people that complain about it, but we actually give a code challenge. So it's, it's like a simple problem and it's time. So you have an hour, although we don't, we're not really strict about the time, but, we just say, write an app that does this. And the, the requirements are quite simple. Any experienced developer should not look at it and be like, well, what, what the heck is this? It's pretty straightforward kind of a thing and pretty typical of, of normal development. And then what we really want to see is the code that they write. You know, do they know how to write a simple app that is written well, but doesn't, isn't over engineered and the code's clean, but they haven't gone crazy on design patterns that really weren't warranted for such a simple problem and that kind of thing. And, and we found that. To be a, you can tell a lot about somebody just by reading a little bit of code that they've written to solve a problem. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. We do something similar at Fortworks, except we have, it's like a take-home assignment, I guess. We send someone a choice of three different problems, and then they have like a week, I think, to build a solution, and then we do a code review. The nice thing about that is it also forms the basis for like in-office interview. So we have something concrete that we can talk about with the candidate, and it's their code so they know it right so they're comfortable talking about it rather than coming up with some abstract problem and saying like you know how would you solve this problem you can find an existing problem in their code because you know no code is perfect and talk through like their code and, and how they would kind of improve their own code it works works well for us yeah we've definitely done that i've actually taken one of those as well where it's been a take home and had a week to finish it in addition to that, though, we've also done pairing sessions with candidates as well. So, and one of the reasons why we've done that, uh, where I've been is that we wanted to get a feel for what it's like to work with someone because that's a big, uh, I don't pair as much in my current job, but we did a lot of pairing, um, a previous place of employment and, uh, it was a big, big, since it was such a large component, but just team dynamic is such a big component. We made that a part of the, of, of the process as well. So spending like 30 minutes to an hour actually working on an existing bug or feature in the backlog with a candidate just to kind of get a feel for their approach to problem solving. I, I agree with Alondo in the sense that once you can establish they have a baseline skill level, how they are to work with becomes way more important to me. That's true. Yeah, it's hard to tell if someone knows what they're doing, but it's even harder in an interview to tell if they're easy to work with. You know, are they combative about every little thing? Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And you don't find that out until they're they're on the job and they've been for they've been there for a couple of weeks and actually get into code. At that point, you're too late. Yeah, there's no perfect hiring process that will tell you whether or not they're the person you want. Um, you find that out, like you said, within a few weeks of them coming on board. One of the other things that we did earlier in the process too, though, is that when we're interviewing someone, we talk about. Some places tend to ask like these 
sort of, I say, rote questions about frameworks or, you know, view lifecycle or things like that. I like to ask questions to let people sort of talk about their experience in a particular area, just to kind of get a feel for what their experience level is with that. Say, for instance, a core data or, you know, some issue that they've had with view lifecycle or a, a particular challenge. And what I really look for a lot of times is just their ability to speak about uh, a particular area uh, directly pitfalls if they it's uh, I always like if I can hear like tips someone says you may run into this issue because that means that they've probably delved a little bit deeper into a particular area and not looking for expertise you know and, and knowledge of everything of course because that's impossible but just want to get a feel for sort of, sort of competence and sort of that they've got a few scars you know from development I guess that kind of leads into you you mentioned a couple of things there of like things that you would expect a candidate to know about like view lifecycle and core data What's some other stuff? If I was like a, a .NET dev that wants to learn enough to get through the interview process, not like in a cheesy way, but like in a like learn enough so that they can have a conversation and to get into their kind of first entry entry level job. What stuff is there that you would expect every candidate to know, even if they're in relatively new to the world of iOS? I usually push them to the point where they have to tell me they don't know something. <laughs> just because i hate the people that are going to go in and screw up my project because they think they know the answer they think they can fudge it when in all reality all they have to do is go ask somebody right second order ignorance is the is the worst when you don't know what you don't know that's when you really screw things up that's yeah good. so but and, and i think the same thing and i've typically asked questions that i knew that that even a really good developer might not know the answer to and the answer i was looking for was not the answer to the question, it was, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know, and then maybe we talk about how they would figure it out or whatever, but the point is I don't want somebody who just bluffs or makes things up as they go along. I once uh, interviewed at Google, and one of the phone screen questions they asked me was to write a regex that would match every possible regex. <laughs> uh, and I'm pretty pretty sure they weren't expecting me to, well, I know they weren't expecting me to write it, because technically it's not possible. But that was a good example of, like, I'm hoping they were expecting me to say I'm not sure how to do that, because uh, I, that's, that's what I said. <laughs> that was actually a really fun interview. But anyway, back to your question, what skills do you look for people to have? Well, I think the the big question is, we talked a little bit about Swift versus Objective-C. What about storyboards versus non-storyboards? You know, a lot of the ways Apple is leading us to develop is storyboards. But I think most of the bigger apps out there aren't using them or haven't been if they started three or four years ago. Yeah, that's the, ch- that's the challenge is depending on when someone started doing iOS development, they may, may not have exposure to certain techniques or, or, or tools. And they may not be, someone may be used to building views not and, or using nibs and not using storyboards, and they may still be dead set. I, I actually know people are, you know, begrudgingly even now uh, using storyboards, so they wouldn't know anything about them. Or people that only know Arc and would not, you know, weren't developing pre-Arc, so are not as familiar with some of the memory management issues. Yeah, I forgot one. There's storyboards, nibs, and also in code, which was very common if you look at something from four or five years ago. So there's a lot of ways you can work on an app and have no clue how the rest of the world is doing things. Yeah. I guess the way that I think about it is there's most of someone's working life or like most of the time they're going to be working at a job. The main thing you need to be able to do is to be good at learning things rather than have knowledge. But I do think there's some kind of key like things that you would expect everyone to know. Like I think view lifecycle is a really good example. I'd almost say arc 
is a good example as well. Like if I was uh, looking for a, a senior iOS dev, I would want them to be able to talk through with me or at least try and talk through with me how Arc works under the covers, like explain reference counting and why you need to do it and that kind of stuff. Like even if you don't need to do it in your day-to-day job, I feel like you need, if you're a senior dev or like a like the lead on a team, then you need to understand some of that internal stuff so that you can get to the bottom of some, some hairy issues, you know? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You should be able to know how to create a retain cycle and how to avoid those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I can tell you from experience that that's one of the first questions Apple will ask in a phone screen, you know, phone interview, is can you explain how Objective-C's memory management model works? And they don't want you to say, oh, it's it's Arc, you don't have to worry about it. It's magic. Right. <laughs> but Arc is I, perfect. It's garbage collection. You don't have to think yeah. about it, right? Well, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> but I, I think speaking about storyboards and storyboards versus nibs versus code, some of that to me is almost like a religious choice. I mean, there are people that are really adamant one way or the other, and I don't actually care that much which one they use or which one they know how to use. I really care more about whether they're going to integrate well with the team and be willing to make decisions as a team and to adapt their personal view to whatever the team decides on and not be difficult to work with or dogmatic because we've had that problem before and and it's way more of a problem than the person having this opinion is that they're dead set on their opinion being right. I actually think that my my observation having been in a few different communities is there is an aspect of that that's more prevalent with Apple and iOS developers is this kind of that kind of classic developer arrogance like I know the right way and it's just going to take you a while to come around to to my one truth that I know and and everyone else is not quite smart enough to understand yet. Yeah, and that that really doesn't work well. Just in terms of interpersonal politics or whatever, it doesn't work well on a team that's just trying to get something done and ship an app, you know. Yeah, strong opinions loosely held are is the best approach I find. Yeah, Andrew, you had, you had a good point where it doesn't really matter what you've done in the past. A good developer is going to learn whatever he needs to learn. So that's the more enlightened perspective. Unfortunately, you get into interviews and people have that dogmatic approach and like you need to understand these type of things. They don't really, it's hard to figure out if someone can learn or is open to a different approach. I think some of the techniques you talked about will help, but if you had to pick one to go with to kind of build up your skill set, what would it be? I will say that in interviews I've done, I have asked about manual reference counting in particular, and, and I really sort of want to, you know, understand, I want to hear that they understand how that works, and I'm not that flexible about it. Like if they say, oh, I don't know anything about that, that's a pretty big red flag to me. So I would say if you're a post-ARC developer, you started after ARC, learn, you don't need to, you know, go write an app using manual reference counting only, but Make sure you understand how that works. And I think the same is true of sort of the other underlying technologies. Like there are a lot of surprising number of people who don't understand how Objective-C properties work. And I know those aren't new anymore, but I started writing Objective-C before properties were a thing. And some people think they're just sort of magic and they're not, they're not really magic. They're similar to Arc. They're just the compiler doing things for you that you used to have to do yourself. So sort of trying to understand some of the low-level underpinnings of the things that you take for granted, I think it can be really helpful in showing that you actually care and know about the technology that you're using. Are people still saying properties are evil, dot notation? Well, has that kind of faded away? Yeah, there probably are. I'm not even talking about dot notation. I'm talking about the actual at property declarations and synthesized accessor methods because there was a time when those just didn't exist. You wrote your own accessor methods. 
but as far as dot notation versus bracket notation, to me, that's another religious thing. And I don't know, I can see having a strong opinion, but being like unwilling to bend to your team's code standards or code style is, is not really a good thing. Yeah, you do not want to hire someone who spends the weekend converting the entire code base from one to the other because they believe it's a better thing to do. So it's good to be able to identify what the holy wars are in iOS and talk your way around them, you know. So, yeah, or, sh- or show that you're open to... I mean, I think Andrew's got a really, really good point, right? Like, you want to show that you're open to... That you have an opinion based on some logic, <laughs> but you're open to changing that opinion. Or even, like, saying, you know, like, I don't really agree with this. I think it would be better if we did it the other way, but I understand that we're a team, and it's more important for the team to have consensus than for me to get my way every time, you know? Yep. You know, the sun's still going to rise tomorrow, no matter what <laughs> we do. Well, apart from tabs versus spaces, if you use tabs, then the sun the sun's not going to rise. I mean, <laughs> as long as you don't mix. Waiting for that one to come up. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about figuring out if somebody's a good fit for you to hire. If you're on the other end, how do you figure out if the company is a good fit for you? I think that's a really good question, and I think some of that comes out in the interview because you get to talk to. I think hopefully more than one of the people, but at least one of the people that you're going to be working with. But I, I think what we talked about earlier can be really helpful, which was like I started at Mixed In Key kind of doing doing it as a as a side job, just doing contract work. And I got to learn a lot about the team and the stuff I, I you know, that they work on and the way they work together. And so by the time I decided to quit my real job and and do that full time and I already knew what I was getting into, so there wasn't a lot of uncertainty. Well I think one measuring bar is take a look at what happens during the interview process. Are they asking questions like the ones we've been talking about? Because these are all solid advice. Or are they asking trivial things? You know, are they doing stress interview type questions? You know, if they answer a question and half the room you're talking to immediately starts typing at their keyboard, you know, that's a stress technique meant to find out if how you behave under pressure. And if companies are doing that, you know, walk away. Yeah, it's probably I would, a problem. I would definitely agree with that. Well, I think another thing is as the person being interviewed, don't be afraid to ask questions. I mean, usually an interviewer will say, do you have any questions for me? At least in my experience, they want you to ask questions. It's not something like you have to say, oh, no, no, everything's yeah, good. Totally. Ask questions. I definitely consider that a red flag if someone doesn't have a single question to ask. That's weird. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. the, the thing is, is that your best employees are going to be the ones that are happy working at your company. And so if they are not making sure they're going to be happy there, then they, you know, then you're running that risk. I think yeah. it is a red flag. I think it's something to be aware of. I always describe the interview process like as a both, you know, you're interviewing the company and the company is interviewing you. And it's as important for the company to make sure you're a good fit as it is everything else. And the only way to do that is like be pretty transparent, I think. Like if you can't get a good feel for the culture of the company, then it's really hard to know whether you're going to work out there. Even if, even if you're super smart and they're going to pay you a bunch of money, if, if they're, just not aligned with you, then it's tough. I interviewed at Google, and going back to that that thing Andrew said about like looking at what questions they ask or how they interview. I think that was Andrew. They spent eight hours just grilling me on like algorithms and like coding problems, and they spent like maybe one hour talking about process or like how I work as a team or how I'd work in a team. And I left that interview process thinking, geez, that's like the they do not care at all about the act of building software, all they care about is like algorithms and data. And I think if I was really into that kind of stuff, then it would be a great fit. But I, I care about more than just 
writing algorithms. So I decided it wouldn't, wasn't a good fit. And then they turned me down. So it worked out great. <laughs> they fired me before I could fire them. Well. So I, though, I think it's important to understand the culture and the environment you're working in. And, uh, as you said, you're interviewing. I am always disappointed when I'm doing an interview and the candidate doesn't have any questions, uh, at the end. Just because I know if they're younger or they're junior, you know, they tend to be a little more nervous and they tend to not have questions. But it's important if anyone, you know, is listening, please ask questions. But also, it's tough when you're interviewing because the company's putting their best foot forward as well. And so you don't really get a feel sometimes for sort of where that project has been unless they're transparent. Uh, that the state of the code base, what management's like there, what the processes are like, if they're not forthcoming with the, with that information. One of the tricks that I used to do is ask the same question to multiple people and see if they gave me roughly the same answer, right? Like I'd, I'd figure, I, I would decide what I thought the biggest like risk was in terms of the job. Like what was I most scared of turning out to be true once I got there? And then I'd figure out some kind of question that would help answer that. And I would ask that same question to every person interviewing me and see how lined up they were. So like if I, if I was worried that the company tends to do death marches and doesn't value kind of work-life balance, then I'd ask like each person interviewing me uh, the same question about like, you know, how often do you guys work more than 40 hours a week or whatever? And if the answers were inconsistent, then that's like the big, big red flag because it's still, it's like they're kind of, they're aware that it's a problem and they're trying to cover it up, you know? That's a good technique. That's a good point. Because I, I, when I was 22 coming out of college, I had no concept of how to interview a company. So asking questions like that makes perfect sense. Are you working a lot of weekends? How's the code base? You know, yeah, and it's kind of funny, right? Like, I think particularly more junior people or people that haven't interviewed that much do feel like it's a one-way thing. And the questions they're asking are supposed, are supposed to be to show that they're a good candidate, right? Like, like, will I be challenged here? Because I really like being challenged. But, like, I actually, I'm very happy to say, like, what's the biggest problem you guys are facing right now? Like, one of my favorite questions I used to ask was, why would you leave this company? Like, what's the thing that will, that you can see making you leave? And it's, direct enough and it's hard enough to wheedle around that you tend to get like some good insights from from the people you're interviewing it's also a good interview hack to get the interviewer talking about themselves makes them feel like if the interview went better even if you're not even talking kind of a relationship hack sneaky yeah make them think about ice cream as they're leaving the interview (laughs) (laughs) one other thing i've done if i have a lot of time is i've asked to if i can just you know sit and work in the office just be around for a while and you'll pick up a lot of things about who gets along with who and who's happy there and who's not happy there. And, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot of uh, good reads on the dynamics of the company that way. Yeah. The bare minimum you can ask, I think you could almost always ask to like have a tour of the office while you're there mm-hmm. and just kind of, you can pick up a lot by like, you know, is everyone sitting there with their headphones on? Are people laughing? <laughs> people crying? <laughs> that makes sense. And if you're only talking to HR and a hiring manager, you probably want to talk to some people on the team that you'll be working with and get the get the insight from them because it's easy to paint a rose garden if you're not actually doing the work. And the people on the team have less incentive to feed you falsehoods. That's true. And yeah, HR may not even be aware. I mean, they, a lot of times they're, they're not privy to the day-to-day operations at all. So I've got a question which I honestly would love to know the answer to because I've never been very good at it. Assuming you do good in the interview process and you might be getting a job, at what point do you negotiate salary? 
I think all developers are like crap at this kind of thing. I would agree. I've historically been very bad at this. I've gotten better over time. Now I tend to, I mean, once an offer is made, it's at that point that I'm willing to have that discussion. Usually I, I've learned even from working with recruiters to not answer that question before an offer is made. I may, you know, talk about a range, but typically it's just, you know, depending on, you know, we can negotiate or something like that. But once the offer is on the table, then we start talking about the salary. Yeah, I would suggest you should at least get the range very early on because it may be something you're willing to work with and something you're not willing to work with. Yeah, one thing that I found as a freelancer and as an employee is that if I can sell them on myself first, so they know they want to hire me, they know they want to bring me on, then talking money later on, you know, then they're more willing to bend over to make it work. You know, they're willing to flex to make it work because they know that they want me. And so it's not about, okay, does he fit within our range? It's, we got to have this guy. What is it going to take? Definitely. I mean, I'm a consultant, so I'm not an employee. And I definitely agree with what you're saying, Chuck. But I think most positions, they've got their budget. And that's what they can spend. Yeah, but if they really want you, they'll still go to bat and try and get you. And then if they really can't do it, then they'll come back and try and negotiate with you. There's also stuff you can negotiate beyond just salary. So you can negotiate, you know, how many days of time off do you, will you mm-hmm. go in starting with, you know, all, all that other stuff that um, doesn't even occur to, to everyone is negotiable. I guess a lot of it is negotiable if you, if you ask. And the answers from that negotiation are also very valuable feedback. If they're not willing to give you vacation days that you had at your old job, you know, you might want to think about that company as a whole. Any of you guys had any experience with folks coming out of hacker schools, you know, like these like intensive programs, like do you think maybe that's, that's an option for someone who wants to get into iOS development is throw down a bunch of money and do one of these intensive programs. There are a bunch of hacker schools here in Salt Lake city. I've talked to several people coming out of them doing JavaScript and Ruby, not as many doing iOS, but it seems like the main issue that they have is experience. So they come out of there having done three or six months of intensive training and the companies just aren't sure what level of experience they have, and therefore they're not sure of their value. And so a lot of the stuff that we discussed at the beginning of the show really comes into that. And go out there, put yourself out there, find some projects, get some stuff done, put some code behind your name, and it will pay off for you, I think, a whole lot better. That's not to say that it's not a good option. It's just another way of learning the skills. But the ones that guarantee you a job, they either have terrific contacts out in the community or they're they're just hoping that they're right. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't have any direct experience in terms of hiring or working with somebody that's gone through one of those schools, but I, I just really think there's no substitute for experience. I, I don't think they're a bad option for, for learning the stuff because I I mean I taught myself from books, so if you can learn that way, you can certainly learn from people who actually know what they're doing. And hopefully the people teaching at those do, but you really don't know what you are actually doing until you've just done it for a long time and made mistakes and just like any other skill. So I would be wary about somebody who's just graduated last week and now they want a job. And I think maybe they would be maybe, you know, as a quite a junior position where they understand that they've got a lot to learn and the company hiring them does too. But I certainly wouldn't think they'd be ready for a sort of senior or even just mid-level kind of developer job. Yeah, I think it comes down to how much resources a company has to kind of babysit what they're doing and provide mentoring because, yeah, you're not going to be a senior level developer at six months. It's just not going to happen, but you can do a lot of things. You can change text, you can fix things, you can do, and if you have supervision and some mentoring, then they could probably be a, a useful member of the team. 
but you need that in place in your company. And a lot of companies don't have that. Yeah. Or have any concept of how to do it. That's actually a really good point for someone who's fairly junior. One of the things you should definitely be trying to figure out when you're interviewing with a company is how they're going to support you, like growing into like a, a strong developer, because that is, as a consultant, I get to go to a lot of companies and see how they do this. And it is shocking, like shocking how bad some companies treat their junior devs in terms of support. They just kind of throw them in a problem and just assume they'll learn. And it's just, it's such a waste because the dev's not going to get up to speed as fast. The company's going to be paying them to not be very good. It's just, it's crazy. So I think that's a really important thing to to look at when you're interviewing is is how they plan to support you growing into like a an awesome developer. This kind of leads into another question. What does your ideal job look like? Or what things in a job um, make it the most fulfilling for you? Actually, in my experience, I like challenging work, but I really, the, a big bonus for me is working with good people. The team has become such an important thing for me in the last few years of just doing development. And when I'm working with people who I can learn from, and they don't necessarily just have to be more senior or more experienced, but just coming from a different background or just bringing a different perspective, I find that really refreshing. And I like, you know, starting a new day. It it makes the work, even if sometimes you get into modes of work where it's not the most innovative work or something like that. If you're working with good people, it, it just makes a huge, huge difference. That's totally my, agree with that. That's my biggest factor, too, is the people I work with. Yeah. The, the problems and everything else kind of, they matter, but they don't matter as much to me. I, yeah, I completely agree with that, too. The team I'm working with is as important, if not more important, than the work we're doing, which is not to say that reasonably challenging, but not too challenging, interesting, cool work is not important, because it is, but you can have all that, and if the people you're working with are not fun to work with, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, definitely. If a team is collaborative, that's a huge benefit for me. If everyone's on the team, but just does their own thing and doesn't really talk to each other, that's hard for me to work with. I do a lot of work by myself regardless, but you might as well be working by yourself if your team is just heads down. I think the other thing for me, which kind of is related to this is I want a job where I can keep learning. So I want an organization where I'm not the smartest guy in the room and where there's enough variety in the work I do that I can, I keep wanting to get out of bed because it's not the same old same old and i'm always like i feel like i've learned something you know every month for every six months i could look back and say oh that's cool i didn't know coffee script before or i didn't know core data or i didn't know how to do design and now i kind of understand the fundamentals of design that kind of stuff pete that was a great point it ties back to something you said earlier about when you're evaluating the benefits more than salary what types of ways does a company support your learning? Do they, are they open to letting you do other people get to work in different teams, different projects, training, conferences, all those kinds of things, I think play a big part in sort of supporting your growth in yeah. learning. And it's really easy. It, like it's very easy to find out just the fundamental kind of culture in the company. You just ask what's their policy for kind of for supporting people learning. And a good company will say, well, we have a budget for people to go to conferences and we have a book program and we have these five things a bad company will be like well we do think it's important and we do encourage that you know like they they don't have a, anything in place they just think it's a good idea but they they don't really have any anything that behind thinking it's a good idea pete i think it's a good idea <laughs> glad to hear that Chuck. of course there's the corollary that the startups probably don't have a program like that but you will automatically get thrown into all sorts of different things that you can work with. I don't know though. Like that's that's kind of true, but it's kind of not true. Like a startup that's moving 
as particularly a startup that's successful and is moving really fast and growing really fast, if you go in there as an entry-level person, I wouldn't be that surprised if you just get kind of thrown into a corner and just asked to do just really boring, unchallenging stuff. And no one's got time to skill you up and no one's got time. You know, it's like this kind of local optimization where people don't have time to teach you this thing. So you're going to just stay. All you can do is JavaScript and CSS or something, you know? Yeah, but most startups that I've worked with are self-aware enough to know that they don't have time to bring up the junior devs. So unless they have a whole bunch of work that a junior dev could do, they're not even looking for them. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's, I think again, this might be a, just like a Silicon Valley thing. There's such a need for developers that I think there's more of an appetite to just say, Oh, we'll just bring in a junior developer and they'll, and they'll get up to speed. And, but then if you don't put anything in place to help them get up to speed, then they're not going to get up to speed. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that's just a uniquely uh, Silicon Valley problem. I've actually seen it happen here in the Southeast as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking about cases in my career where I've been working on doing one aspect of kind of the code base and the company realized they needed to do something else and no one knew how to do it. So I'd be like, Oh, I can do that. And I had to figure it out. So a way I could expand my skill set. So it's worked for me. And this was in smaller companies, startups, but maybe not the Silicon Valley thing that you're talking about. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's true. If you've got that attitude of like being excited to learn and you want to grow your skills, then a startup is a good, is definitely good because yeah, like you said, there's always, stuff that needs to get done and, and if you're a self-starter and you'll just you'll put your hand up and volunteer to do stuff it's a great environment to do that way more so than in some big enterprise where it's like oh well it is not part of your role to be touching the css that's a different department so you have to stay doing whatever it is that you're doing today yeah but don't be i don't want to get anyone in trouble in their job but generally don't be afraid to jump in and volunteer to be involved in those things because i found that it really does pay off and you wind up developing another skill that you can use later on well, anything else before we get to the picks oh it's percy all right alondo what do you have for us okay i have two picks this week um one is i've started using a different tool for um testing restful apis and uh it's a tool called paw from uh, lucky marmot i think i'm pronouncing it correctly it's a really nice tool and i've uh, been i just found it quite useful I'm trying to think about the cost. It's a Mac, it's available on the Mac App Store, but I can't remember what the cost is. It's a free 10-day trial, though, so and you can give it a shot. And this is version 2 of Paul. The second tool is a tool that I uh, was introduced to by a friend at uh, the 360 IDW Men last week, and it's uh, faux pas uh, for Xcode, and it's, a, it's an analyzer. Uh, and it's apropos of today's subject because when working as a team, one of the things that we try to make sure we do is have our coding standards adhere to um, when we're doing our code reviews. And this is a tool that will help that. So you actually can analyze the code and actually set for your code base uh, basics, uh, standards that you want to adhere to, the, the rules that you would like to be applied. Uh, so it makes it a lot easier to stay in compliance. Um, and if you're moved from project to project, of course, it makes it a lot easier too because not every project has the same rules. So the faux pas app for Xcode is my second pick. And that those are my picks. Very nice. Andrew? Yeah, so I, I just have one pick today, and uh, it's um, it's the Core Intuition Jobs Board. So Core Intuition's a another iOS and Mac developer podcast by Manton Reese and Daniel Jalkut. And the reason I'm picking this is because we've talked about jobs today, but also because we found the last Mac developer that we hired at Mixed in Key through a posting on Core Intuition Board. And to be honest, we've got a way lower response from our posting on Core Intuition than we did on some other job posting sites. But 
they were uniformly higher quality. They were all, they were, they were actually all, all the people we got that responded actually seemed really good. So I think it's, it's a high quality sort of narrowly targeted jobs board. And there are some cool posts on it right now, including a bunch of jobs from Apple. So that's the core intuition jobs board. That's my pick. Chuck, what do you have for us? So uh, I've got two picks. The first one is if you're a freelancer, um, my friend Eric Davis is starting a new mailing list called Freelance Chi, and it's a weekly email. It has a bunch of links and articles related to freelancing, and it's it looks really good. Um, I, I believe I got the first one, and I was pretty excited about what was in it. So um, that's one pick. The other pick is is that if you listen to this show and you like it, I am looking for more sponsors for the show. So if you know of a company or a tool that you like that you want us, you think might be willing to sponsor the show, please let me know. And if you are a listener and you work at such a company, then also please let me know so I can reach out to the right people and see if we can get uh, sponsorships going for the show so that we can pay for all the costs related to putting it up. That's all I got. Pete. For my picks, Chuck, how would someone let you know? How would they get in touch with you? Chuck at devchat.tv. Great to know. Okay, moving on to my picks. The first one I can't resist because it's just so tempting. Fortworks.com slash join. If you want to come and work at Fortworks, then come and find out what a wonderful company we are. Speaking of jobs. Uh, my second pick is an article on fastcompany.com about kind of the truth behind hacker schools. It seems kind of interesting, um, an interesting read. I haven't actually read it, but I, I just found it while, while we were doing the show, and it sounds like an interesting kind of alternative perspective to kind of all of the fluffy puppies and unicorns kind of stories that I keep on hearing about hacker schools. My third pick is a book called Being Geek. If you know the internet celebrity Rands in Repose, this is a book that he wrote. Uh, it's kind of a collection of his blog posts, essentially. Uh, a few years ago. The reason I'm picking it is a really, really good book in general. It's basically about, it's a software developer's handbook and it's about essentially how to do stuff other than actual software development. Uh, he has loads of good advice around interviewing and negotiating salaries and uh, leading teams and all the kind of stuff that like is tangentially around the, the, the job of or the life of being a software developer. I really, really recommend it. And then my last pick is another job board, Slack at work. So uh, Slack is this kind of chat thing that got really trendy recently. They did this really interesting thing. They just made a website that's free for people to post. And if you're a company that uses Slack, then you can list jobs on their job board. So it's essentially, it's like, oh, well, I like Slack, so I want to go and work at a company that uses it. Kind of a wacky idea. I have no idea whether the jobs are any good or not, but I just wanted to pick it because I thought it was kind of funny. And that's my picks. Thanks. Yeah, I've been using Slack with one of my clients, and I'm enjoying it quite a bit. So I've got one pick. Chuck talked about a freelancer's email list. Many of us are probably on the iOS weekly email list. Uh, one thing from last week, we talked about Swift and should we go to it. So it's always interesting to me to find out, get people's perspective on whether we should go to Swift or not. But there's one article from Near the Speed of Light, and we talked about Swift, and it's always good to you know get other people's perspective. So I thought it was a good good post. That is my pick. So I guess that's it for the show. I think everyone's ready to get new jobs now. I hope we helped people out. We'll see you next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. 
They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreaksShow.com slash forum. 